Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Don Dale Detention Center in Australia's Northern Territory became infamous over the past several years for a series of abuse scandals suffered by the mostly Aboriginal children imprisoned there. On November 7th, some of these imprisoned youth set fire to the facility for the second time in three weeks. This time, during an uprising lasting several hours, they succeeded in destroying a substantial part of the detention center. Supporters are expressing concern for prison organizer Davon Person, who is charged with inciting a riot at Craggy Correctional Institution in Northern Carolina. He's been in prison for 10 years, since the age of 17, and he was about to become eligible for release. Supporters believe that these authorities are singling him out for this disturbance due to his history of standing up for prisoners' rights. They suggest that if you share these concerns, you can call Kenneth Lazeter, the Director of Prison Facilities, at 919-838-4000 and ask him to drop the charges. In the recent midterm election, Vox reported Colorado passed Amendment A, which will officially delete language permitting inmates to engage in forced prison labor without pay as a punishment for crimes committed. The U.S. Constitution's 13th Amendment states, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except for punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. Colorado's state constitution said nearly the same thing until voters approved Amendment A. The organizations that supported the amendment included Abolish Slavery Colorado and the state ACLU and NAACP. A similar amendment failed in 2016 election, largely because of the confusing, convoluted language in the amendment. Passage of the amendment makes Colorado one of the first states to remove such language from the Constitution. Similar bills failed this year in Wisconsin and Tennessee. According to Death Penalty Focus, a new report called Judge for More Than Her Crime, a global overview of women facing the death penalty, published by the Cornell Center on the Death Penalty Worldwide, finds that California holds the largest number of women on death row in the U.S. Since 1893, California has executed four women, the last in 1962. As of October of last year, 54 women are on death row in the U.S. They constitute 2% of the total death row population. Since 1973, 181 women have been given death sentences in the U.S. Based on three years of research, the report estimates that at least 500 women are currently condemned to death globally, and that a minimum of 100 women have been executed in the last 10 years. Since the death penalty was reestablished in the U.S. in 1976, 16 women have been executed. According to Pew Trusts, 1 in 55 adults was on probation in the U.S. in 2016. The populations on probation and parole increased to 139% from 1980 to 2016, meaning that almost 2% of U.S. residents were involved. 
Though the so-called community corrections or supervision population declined by 11% since its all-time peak in 2007, it's still twice the size of the population in state and federal prisons and jails together. The rates of community supervision vary widely from state to state, revealing differences in practices and policies throughout the country. The rates vary from 1 in 18 in Georgia to 1 in 168 in New Hampshire. Almost a third of people fail to complete their probation and parole terms every year for various reasons. Nearly 350,000 of them return to jail or prison, often for violating rules instead of committing new crimes. The Tampa Bay Times reported that in the recent midterm election, voters passed Amendment 4, which restores voting rights to 1.4 million Florida residents with felony convictions. The ballot measure received over 64% of the votes with almost no opposition. For the last seven years, people convicted of felonies have had to wait five years after they completed their sentences just to apply for restoration of their voting rights. Approval of Amendment 4 terminates Florida's status as the state with the most people permanently barred from voting. Just three other states ban felons from voting for life. The Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, a bipartisan group that convicted felons lead, spearheaded the campaign for restoring the vote. Amendment 4 doesn't apply to people convicted of murder or sex crimes, but it does apply to people convicted of felonies who have completed their sentences, including probation and restitution. The State Clemency Board can restore the voting rights of people convicted of murder or sex crimes. Finally, we are sharing a letter from anarchist prison rebel Sean Swain, who has been on hunger strike for 28 days in protest of disciplinary measures taken against him. Swain was preemptively punished and isolated shortly before the beginning of the national prison strike on August 21st. Many other outspoken prisoners suffered similar consequences, including Malik Washington, Kevin Rashid Johnson, Sadiq Hassan, and Michael Kimball. Hope it's okay that I'm writing both of you. I got both of your birthday wishes, thank you. But I'm low on stamps. I can only get embossed envelopes, 25 or less at a time, from USPS.com or 1-800-STAMP-24. Quick update, 28 days without food. I'm trying to organize call-in campaigns. Some contact info if you could share this with a few thousand of your closest friends. I'm hoping folks will call and email to urge them to drop disciplinary charges against me as they stem from an online article someone else admits to writing. Also, they can voice concern about my health on hunger strike. If you want to call in to support Sean Swain, you can reach the director of his facility, Stuart Hudson, at 614-387-0588. Today, we're sharing the next part of an interview with Talila Lewis and Dustin Gibson, two organizers and researchers addressing the intersection of disability and incarceration. You heard their interview about the impact of prison on the deaf community and the organization they work with, HERD, helping educate to advance the rights of the deaf. Now, Dustin starts out speaking about the sometimes moral consequences of being poor and about some of the issues with juvenile incarceration. Dustin explains how important it is to be able to identify and name disability, and Talila tells us about various types of disability and where it intersects with prison. They also speak about their work with the Harriet Tubman Collective and some of the issues they encounter while organizing around disability. Here they are. 
I try to get away from like talking about these incidents as like numbers, like there are over 450 juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania. Like, what does that actually mean? Like, those are actual people. Like, and then there's people that don't make it out, right? Not out of uh, prison, not out of the community, not out of this year, not out of 2018. And those are the experiences that we all collectively carry with us as community or as builders in that community. Just two weeks ago, someone passed and um, due to like not being able to access uh, housing and healthcare for years. So it's like this compilation of all of these different things happening that, that took years for him to die. But once he did, uh, no one's there to claim the body. It falls on organizers and folks that are there to actually like claim the body, pay for a cremation, pay for something to go in the paper just so people know Make that. Make sure that the it, medical doctors don't steal his body from yeah, research. Yeah, so like that's like a, that's like a real aspect of, of being in community with folks that uh, um, I think we both experience. And also to, to work with the, the, the quote-unquote undesirables that we can look at them and we can read the statistics on a paper and know that they'll be dead or in jail in a year or two years. Like, we hear people say that quite a bit, like, at-risk youth, quote-unquote, unquote, um, and, and no one is there. Like, well, not no one, but there's not a lot of people there to actually counsel them through them situations. So that's why love is, like, a huge portion of this it's everything in that if I'm looking at like a group of 11 year olds that all carry a gun and will without hesitation take the life of somebody around their same age that looks just like them that's telling me that they don't love themselves enough they're killing themselves. like it's literally they're looking in the mirror to do that but then you go into like the kid jails and you see exactly how that mentality is perpetuated because everybody there is telling them that they've done something wrong. These are 12-year-olds, like 13-year-olds. They haven't uh, uh, seen their mothers or their, 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 their family outside of, you know, like this little cell for six months. Like, that, that's ridiculous. Like, we have solitary confinement for, for 11 and 12-year-olds. Like, although they don't call it that, they call it like separation or some other term for it. and they can only be in there for two hours and then a 15 minute break when nobody else is around so they're literally isolated but they're put in these situations where I'll go into the kid jail and staff will say um I can't believe that these animals are having this type of conversation right now and we're literally talking about their community and the way that the system is set up for us to die and be after like we make a lot of profit for somebody else um and there are intellectual conversations that, like, the, 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 the traditional education system that we have that T.O. talked about does not allow space for them to have in a way that um, we can understand it. Um, that articulation of our trauma has to be put in this academic or scholarly way in order for people to care. And by care, it's typically fun that to promote this, to build more and, and get profit somehow. Um, but that's not the that works, right? Like, and we know that is folks that like either are in some type of proximity, close proximity to, 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 to folks that have organized for abolition. So yeah, 
naming disability is also this this thing that like we we don't have access to in a way that folks with class privilege do um and if you can't name disability that's not to name it to say like hey like we need to treat it we need to fix it we need to get rid of it it's to name it to like know who you are as is like a human and like what you need to like be okay that is across the board from the, the kids in the jail to the adult prisons when we talk about disability i mean it's stigmatized but it's not just with you know uh, negatively racialized communities that the stigma lives it's 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 in the world this is an ableist world so naming that disability is like this profound uh, uh transformation that happens in people when they they start to like really understand their bodies and how their minds works and know that it's okay and natural um you can't really successfully like come out of things until you know what uh what you've experienced and how it's affected you um so so just naming disability is where we're at now we're not even to the point where we could actually talk about um um undoing ableism inside of us undoing ableism in systems uh we just have to like know that it exists first and that it's not uh it's not a weakness ableism and then sanism is really important as well so ableism within the umbrella under the umbrella of ableism are different forms of ableism so autism is uh oppression of folks who um are not necessarily hearing or speaking and uh the traditionally understood manner so folks who are deaf folks might who might have speech apraxia or selective um muteness um sanism is a uh, discrimination against folks who might have uh, what some call psychiatric disabilities some call neurodivergences some call intellectual or developmental disabilities it, it spans the gamut but it's this idea that it's okay to kill someone who is in an emotional crisis right and that person's not even necessarily disabled like oh my brother died now i'm going i'm losing my mind right like that doesn't mean you're necessarily disabled per se um but it means that you're having a moment right and that you care and love should be given right um you know and and yeah and and also in in not just like discrimination too it's like also a part of that system that ism that allows for shit like a 302 to exist where you can be arrested and and stolen from wherever you're at because somebody said you were crazy and taken to a place that they tell us treats folks but is 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 almost the same as the county jail outside of um um uh being able to see an attorney cuz you don't see one you know you're there for the 72 hours like you don't have these legal rights like so that that system of sanism is that a system and it's not just that discrimination piece yeah and then i think the most important component arguably the most important component is linking sanism to anti-black racism um and so yesterday during the presentation we were talking about drapetomania which was this uh this uh, Samuel Cartwright uh who was a very popular scientific eugenicist um developed these random disabilities that uh, he called them the peculiarities and diseases of the negro person right um that folks who escaped from enslavement now have become crazy particularized this term drapetomania so folks like Frederick Douglass folks like Harriet Tubman were deemed not just criminal in their behavior but also um insane in their behavior um and i talk about this in terms of um criminalization and um disablement of dissent 
right? Like if you can create a disability out of that, if you can create a crime out of that, that's the way that you suppress whatever that thing might be. You also create within the individuals who might wish to run or might wish to um, protest. So rascality was another disability where black folks would say, I'm not working anymore. Um, and, and of course the, the uh, treatments for this, according to the scientists, were to whip the devil out of them or what were some of the other treatments? Uh, uh, a warm bath, sunlight, labor. Right. Um, um, and so all of that is, of course, tied to not just current day institutions like psych wards, but also to um, transinstitutionalization, which is the carceral system, the foster system, where they try to figure out how to how to make money off of our children who are undesirable, and the prison system, where you know everyone's working for no pay or very little pay, or and, and a system is making money off of the backs of those folks who are deemed undesirable. Yeah, I think right now the, 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 the rhetoric around like mental health treatment is to say that the, the, the largest mental health providers in the nation are uh, jails, one in Chicago, one in L.A. Um, and Rikers. And, and Rikers. And that's like to, to erase this idea that um, somehow folks were getting access to treatment at these state hospitals. Um, and if jail is, is the place where mental health treatment is happening, which I haven't seen it actually happening anywhere, if it is, like, what does that say about, you know, our world? So maybe um, we just mentioned the Harriet Tubman Collective. Yeah, yeah that, well. that's an important group of people in space um, that's been carved out. It's uh, black, deaf, disabled um, organizers, community builders, lovers, uh, uh, fighters for justice, trainers, educators. Like, it's uh, we range in, in age. We, there, there, there's elders that are a part of it that have been a part of uh uh, black liberation and freedom struggle for disabled people for uh, decades now. Um, it's it's a space that has become somewhat of a, uh, a think tank, uh, a, a way to support each other. Um, and, and this is in the context of knowing that uh, uh, naming disability has been something that's uh, particularly difficult for our communities and also the, uh, the disability spaces that have been carved out by white people or, or resourced organizations um, e erase our, 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 our margins or our, our marginal identities. Um, so given that context, like us, us being able to just like be in community with one is like a huge thing. Um, yeah, so it goes back to what Dustin mentioned earlier, filling this gap, so right? Disability rights and deaf rights organizations and advocacy circles um, are quite racist. They have a, what we call a white supremacy problem. Um, and also ableist, so interestingly enough, there's hierarchies of what disabilities are better than others and you know, even within disability spaces. So of course that's gonna exist outside of disability spaces. And a lot of that is internalized, which I don't wanna get into now. But um, so recognizing that in the disability rights, not to be confused with disability justice, but in disability rights spaces, there are these issues of classism, racism, trans antagonism, and so on and so forth. And in black and indigenous and other communities that have been uh, racialized in negative ways, um, that there is a, um, an ableism problem 
among other issues, right? There's still classism issues and other issues, but in particular, an ableism problem where it's impossible for a lot of us to name disability. Um, and that's, again, that's also internalized issues as well from you know, societal um, structures that be. The Harriet Tubman Collective fills a gap where we create disability solidarity by forcing disability and deaf communities to reckon, reckon with the white supremacy that they've been perpetuating all along and also forcing um, our communities of color, um, race, folks who are fighting for racial and economic justice to acknowledge and name and address structural ableism, not just within our own communities, but also of society that are weighing heavily on our communities. And if we don't lift both of those on both sides simultaneously, we'll never get free, right? So the Harriet Tubman Collective comes in and fills that gap um, and tries to, to really bridge the divide. Um, and again, it's like Dustin is saying, it's like the um, person who presented upstairs was mentioning that it took 15 years just to talk to people about education just talk about why is it important to learn a little bit more than we know right now. That's where we are about disability. Just, we're just trying to just say the word and like, here's what ableism is and here's a possible definition of ableism. What do you think? What have your experiences look like? Um, how can we get free from um, that particular form of ableism, autism, sanism, whatever, right? We haven't even gotten to a place where we're, we're mobilizing or being funded for any of this work. Um, you know, the folks who get funded happen to be white, uh, <laughs> cisgender men yeah, yeah. who happen to be quote unquote professors or reporters, right? Yeah, and I mean that will extract a, a lot of information from, from us because being able to be in community with folks for a lot of us the first time, like the, the thoughts that come from that and the manifestations of that like pour into the work that we typically do and, and that is something that we make accessible um, because we know folks need it. So we don't necessarily guard it or protect it in the way that uh, folks might do with intellectual property. Copyright. So it's, it's, it's very easy to come in and extract that and use it for profit, which happens. Um, yeah. White journalists, uh, white non-disabled journalists will write about our deaths, um, and write about our work in ways that, that don't even uh, come close to doing it justice or honoring people actually, but more so harmful than anything. Um, so yeah, there's fighting against that as well. Um, and what does that look like for, for people that are largely unprotected um, in a way that opportunities can be cut off? Um, even for saying something about the extraction yeah. of our labor and intellect. Yeah, right? and, and when opportunities are cut off for a lot of us, like then what that does for like, the communities that you know we exist in is, I mean, grave. And I, I, I don't say that lightly. It's, it's really grave to not be able to uh, uh, operate and do the work in a way. Because I know for a lot of folks in the Harriet Tubman Collective and myself in particular, like the respect that you have associated with your name is how the work actually gets done. So I was thinking of a way to like say like, hey, how can I? folks get connected with me, even if they're to listen to this interview, and that way would be to like, yo, Dustin from Pittsburgh, that's all you have to say. TL and, from her, TL from HTC. And that's, and, and Nobody even they knows will my find full us. Name. Like, TL, yeah. right. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. That's, but, and that means that we're doing something right. Yeah. That's, that's how it should be. And folks do find us, <laughs> lots of folks, so. Like the brothers upstairs were talking about the importance of being able to leverage 
uh, voting block of incarcerated folks. And like we've witnessed that in Pennsylvania with the, the cats out in Philly coming home and organizing themselves in jails and also organizing like their comrades out here to elect the DA that is now like helping to get folks out of jail and also not put people in there because they're poor or they're low income. So like those are like really important things. So like that that at that gate, learning how transformation happens at the gate. Um, and I mean, we learn that from people on the inside. Uh, that's like that's something that they're forced to do in a way that we can exist without that. That's our that's that privilege that we have of being free. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot to learn there. Um, but th that is some of the challenges. And then also uh, uh, the challenges is being in it. That that's a big one. Like I said, I'm like quite literally going insane. Like that's a that's a challenge because it's not it's it's not an easy task to like talk about um, violence reduction and abolition without uh, uh, finding solutions that we have for it. Like so so if we say we can't call the cops for this, like how do we actually resolve the issues within our own community? Sometimes it's like it's like a 15 year old like that has this gun that's ready to go do something that that does not care that I'm there talking about organizing injustice and love right now like so that task is, is for somebody that's the challenge and it's how do we create an apparatus that it doesn't have to be somebody like me and that it can exist without us and after we're gone yeah so there's a couple of things I wrote a piece called um Achieving Liberation Through Disability Solidarity, uh, honoring Arnaldo Rios Soto and Charles Kinsey. Um, in that piece, if you look down toward the bottom, there's um, 10 points for folks who claim to be racial and economic justice, advocates, community builders, and 10 points for folks who claim to be disability rights, advocates, or community builders. The goal being that they begin to start overlapping and just gives 10 points of here's what you can do. So I, I suggest folks might take a look at, at those. Um, I started uh, thinking a lot about freedom privilege uh, about five years ago. So I created the, you know, most folks understand what white privilege is. Hopefully by now folks understand what ability or uh, ability privilege might be, wealth privilege, et cetera. Um, but freedom privilege is something that folks don't commonly discuss. And often folks like Dustin and I will get when we tell folks some of the work we do, often we don't talk about the work we do. Even when you asked earlier, we were kind of like, oh gosh, like where do we begin? When we mention, you know, we go visit incarcerated folks, folks say, oh, what do you teach? And I'm like, nah, like I really sit there and learn. Like I'm not, you know, yeah, I might come in with some, a little piece of knowledge, but like by and large, I'm sitting there like, just like absorbing information and knowledge and loving and like existing with community. Um, and so part of the work is like, what does it mean to be quote unquote free? What do we do with that privilege? Um, how do we leverage it to uplift those who are incarcerated? Um, and if you're at the intersections of privilege, white free folks, that's a whole other conversation that white folks need to work out. White free folks, that's white free people's work, right? And the same that unpacking white privilege is white folks work. Like this is something that white folks who are free really have to, I mean, especially as related to immigration, a lot of the work that needs to be done. Like I'm reminded of the work of white folks whose names we will never know 
during abolition, right? Like in terms of what that white folks work looks like. I don't know what it looks like, right? And nobody needs to know. White folks just need to get busy doing it. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. You can follow us on all social media platforms by searching for KiteLine Radio or find us on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.